Good morning. The Lord of Peace. I love that title. I told First Service that every time I speak, I need to do the 12 days of Christmas first because that's a really good way to get energized and ready to go. So uh, our church, uh, this year we're celebrating Advent as a way of leading up to Christmas. And part of Advent is remembering the different gifts that Jesus brings to us. And so on the first Sunday, we remembered the gift of hope and we lit the candle of hope. And on the second Sunday, we lit the candle of love as we remember the love that Jesus gives us. And last Sunday, we lit the candle of joy as we remember the joy that Jesus brings into our lives. And this Sunday, we're going to be lighting the candle of peace and talking about the peace that Jesus brings into our lives. So I'm going to read this passage. Luke 2, 10 through 14. And the angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign unto you. Ye shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace, goodwill toward men. That passage that we just read, it's, I think, one of the most profound and transformative. It's a small passage, but one of the most profound passages of scripture as it comes with this declaration from God of peace and goodwill toward men. So on that note, our message today is going to be called Jehovah Shalom, which if you know anything about Hebrew or the Hebrew names of God, you would recognize that that's one of the Hebrew names for God. And any guesses what it means? The Lord is our good guess, everyone. Way to go. You're tracking. So Jehovah Shalom, the Lord is our peace. Or if you need an alternative title, either to remember it better or for humor purposes, we will also be calling this Jesus, Peace, and Cheeseburgers. Okay. I have a proposition for you guys this morning. Here is my proposition, that there is a very common way of thinking about God that is actually antithetical to biblical peace. In other words, there's a common way throughout history and today the people have thought about God that's actually in opposition to peace. It fights against the peace that Jesus is trying to bring us. Now, like I said, that's been true throughout history, but it's also true today in the church. I know this because I grew up in the church. My dad was a pastor. He led a denomination. He was a president of a Bible college. I was around church my whole life. And this way of thinking about God that I'm proposing that's common, it was a way of thinking about God that heavily had gotten into me and had kept me from grasping the real peace that Jesus was trying to bring me. And another thing that's sad to me about it is I think oftentimes people who are far from God, who aren't in the church, who don't know him, often the picture that gets presented to them of God includes this way of thinking about him that is in opposition to who he really is and the peace that he brings. So if you're here and you've been around church for your whole life or for a while, I'm proposing that maybe there are some places inside of you where your thoughts look like this antithetical way of thinking about God that's maybe keeping you from experiencing some more of the peace and the reality of that that Jesus has for you. Or maybe church is new for you, or you don't have a relationship with God. Maybe you've kind of been in opposition to him a little bit, or you just haven't really known him that much. Maybe this mindset we're going to talk about has been one of those barriers. Okay, so to, to kind of break that down, we're just going to start by talking about peace. 
what are some symbols in our culture that represent peace? Okay, I saw this right away. What's this? Yeah, right? It's a peace sign. Does anyone know where that came from? What was it? No and yes. No, because it actually originally meant victory. And it was around the time of Winston Churchill in World War II, and it was in celebration of the victory and the peace that the victory was bringing. But it eventually became a symbol as an anti-war protest that we don't want any war. What's another common symbol of peace in our culture? It's true, very true. What's maybe a symbol you would have seen around that time? I see the circle with the lines. Yes, the peace sign. Does anyone know where this symbol came from? It represents, and I've tried to see like the letters in here and why it represents it. It represents nuclear disarmament. Somehow there's an N and a D in there, but I'm not exactly sure how that works. Nuclear disarmament. So again, the picture of peace that our culture has largely has to do with the things we're not doing. We're not having conflict. We're not, there's no tension or conflict around. That's been our picture of peace. Did you know that that is not the picture of biblical peace? So when you read in your Bible and it talks about peace, it's not just talking about no conflict going around, on, around you or just kind of this, oh, everything's fine. Like that is not biblical peace. Biblical peace is not an absence of conflict, but rather it is a presence of wholeness. Now, to break down what wholeness is, I'm going to tell you a quick tale of two cities. So imagine with me, like, there's this great plain. Um, it's this nation somewhere um, a long time ago, and there's this city on the plain, and there's other cities around, and this city has this wall that's protecting them. And they start thinking, okay, I, we want to be a city of peace, and we want to get along with all of our neighbors. So we're going to tear down a wall, and we're going to name our city peace, and we're going to tell everyone to come, and we're going to celebrate, and we're going to party, and we're going to have peace. Well, say there's another kingdom somewhere else that's like, hey, there's nothing protecting that city. We're going to sweep in on in there. All of a sudden, now there's conflict. That city has no means of protection. What happened to their peace? Out the door, right? That's not the picture of peace, just everything's dandy and fine. So another city. This city wants to have good relationships with the surrounding cities, but they understand in order to do that, there has to be a wholeness around them. It's like in the Bible, Nehemiah, when he was going back with some of God's people to Jerusalem, he was grieved because the city of Jerusalem was being rebuilt and God's people were going back there, but it didn't have any protection. There wasn't a wall around it because he knew that in order for there to be biblical peace, there needed to be a wholeness. There needed to be a solidarity and a safety. So this city they had that wall of protection and their neighbors could come in and they could go out, but they knew that regardless of what was going on around them, there was a wholeness and a solidarity and a foundation to who they were from which they could relate to everyone else. Side note, I'm not making a political statement, by the way, talking about cities and walls, I promise. Okay, um, I just, you know, that's important to say. So, um, biblical peace is not an absence of conflict, but a presence of wholeness. Now, there are two words in the Old Testament and the New Testament in the Bible that help us understand this a little bit more. If you're not familiar with the ideas of the Testaments, when we think about our Bible, Jesus is kind of like the central point in the scriptures. Now, if you were literally to open to the middle of your Bible, that's like still way before Jesus. So we have the Old Testament, which is the part before Jesus, and that's 39 books. And then we have the New Testament, which by the way, the Old Testament is all about leading up to Jesus too and the promises that he was gonna come. So then you have the New Testament that's 27 books. And Jesus is the central point between those two things. 
things. And in the Old Testament, the Hebrew word for peace was from our title, Jehovah Shalom. Here are some things that shalom means. Completeness, soundness, welfare, peace, harmony, wholeness, prosperity. It's a very different picture than just, oh, the absence of conflict and nothing going wrong. The New Testament Greek word is erene, and it comes from a root that means to join or to tie things together into a whole. When all the essential parts are necessary there to make that thing whole and solid, erene. Biblical peace is not an absence of conflict, but a presence of wholeness. Now, when the angels came and they announced to the shepherds from God, peace on earth and goodwill toward men, they were announcing that God said, this is what's coming for you, and this is what I have for you. That's a revolutionary picture of what God desires for humanity. But in order to understand truly how revolutionary that statement is, we have to go to the next part of it as well. On earth, peace and goodwill toward men. That is incredibly, incredibly revolutionary. Another way to say that might be to say, God is in a good mood. Now, there's a speaker I really like to listen to. His name is Chris Vallotton. And he talks about how for a long time, when he would go to speak, he would always start by saying, God's in a good mood. And he would just watch as the tension level in the room raised, as everyone was feeling this inner conflict of, wait, but there's probably sin in the room. So could God be here? And can God even be with sin? Is there, is God mad at us? Wait, I could probably be doing more right now than I'm actually doing. So I don't, is God really in a good mood when he thinks about me? The point of that is to say, we don't really believe on some level that when God thinks about you, that he's in a good mood when he thinks about you that he really has good will toward you. Now, I want to illustrate this, so I need a couple volunteers. I have two brave volunteers. I used the youth last service. I'm going to use two adults this time. So thanks for volunteering, though, Avery. Sean, why don't you come up? Nikki, you can come on up as well. You guys come stand over here. You guys are going to be my slaves in this analogy, and I'm going to be your master. So you guys go stand over there. You each get... Oh, over here is great, Sean. You get part of the chain. Nikki, you get part of the chain. Okay. And I'm holding on to this over here. Okay, good. So we have a relationship. I am the slave master. They are the slaves. They obey me. They do the things that I tell them to do. They do work. You're doing your work. You're like breaking up the rocks or I don't know. You're making something. Who gets the benefit of what they make? Me, right? So this relationship is great. I love this relationship. I have goodwill toward them because they do amazing things for me. I have goodwill toward them, right? No? I don't have goodwill toward them? Here's the thing. I have goodwill toward what they do for me, but that is very different than me having goodwill toward them. That's called utilitarian value. When you value something not for what it is in itself, but because of what it does for you. Here's again a proposition that we often view ourselves as having utilitarian value with God. That my value and purpose are based on what I do for God. That my purpose is to obey him. That my purpose is to serve him. That my purpose and my value comes from performing and doing all the things right that he tells me to do. That really I just need to make sure that I'm avoiding sin. 
that that is where my purpose and value come from. That because maybe say they're my kids, not just my slaves, and I, I love them and they make me happy and they bring me joy and so I love them because they make me happy. Still utilitarian value, still based on what they do for me. Or maybe their purpose is just to bring God glory. Still utilitarian value if their purpose and value are assigned on what they do for God. Okay, I'm gonna need you guys to drop the chain for just a second, but stay there. So here's the problem. If their purpose is what they do for me, and we start just thinking about them, God having goodwill toward them, but their purpose is what they do for me, that's not wholeness. Now there's brokenness. Just them, in and of themselves, outside of the context of what they do, if their purpose is what they do for me, when I just start thinking about them, that's brokenness. That's not biblical peace. But when God values and loves them, not for what they do for him, but simply for their own sake, that is wholeness. And that is the profound peace that Jesus came to bring. Now, here's another, break this down just a little bit further. So say that that, that chain gets broken and we're just thinking about them in and of themselves, and I'm viewing it through utilitarian value, in and of themselves, they're a necessary evil in order to accomplish this greater purpose, right? Their purpose is what they do for me. So really they're a necessary evil just there to kind of accomplish this greater purpose. The problem with that mindset is, you guys can go ahead and sit down, thank you. The problem with that mindset is if that's what our relationship with God looks like, in and of myself, I am sin. If my purpose is utilitarian value, when that chain isn't taken into account, and just thinking about me, I become a thing that's actually, in and of myself, robbing God from this greater purpose I'm supposed to be bringing him. God does not value us or assign us purpose in a utilitarian kind of way. Okay, I'm going to read this sentence. If God has goodwill toward us, then he must not view us as utilitarian slaves, but rather as free people that he loves and respects for our good and not for his own. That's wholeness. That is biblical. That's shalom. That's a reine, that he values you for you outside of anything that you do for him and thinks about you in a free way. That's revolutionary that when Jesus came, that is what God declared over humanity. Wholeness, well, this part too. God doesn't value you or assign you purpose for anything that you do for him or give to him. Wholeness means that he values you for your own sake, your future, your freedom, and your destiny. Okay, a whole identity. If we can get hold of what it means that God has wholeness, that he declared peace on earth, this is what a whole identity does. It destroys and undoes fear, performance, and control. When I was in eighth grade, I was crippled by a performance mentality about God. I remember lying in my bed at night, and I knew that God had called me into ministry. I knew that I was going to serve him and walk with him and helping lead the church and lead people toward him. And I was in eighth grade, and this happened probably for that entire year and maybe even longer. It would take me so long to fall asleep. I was terrified every night knowing that someday I would be up in front of people speaking, preaching, handling his word, and that I might get it wrong, or I might miss it, or I might not do a good enough job. I was crippled every night by this incredible fear of not performing well enough for God. 
I remember, and many of you I know will be able to identify with this, praying the prayer over and over again. So when I was little, okay, Jesus, come into my heart, forgive me for my sins. And then a little while later, did I really mean it? I know I've sinned since then. I probably should say it again, just to be safe. Okay, Jesus, would you forgive me for my sins? And really like, I really wanna go to heaven. I don't wanna go to hell. So please like really listen this time. But this cycle would happen where I would think, man, I could have done more this last week. Or I sinned, I, I chose to sin, like I chose it. I severed that, I severed that chain. I was crippled by this performance mentality. This was the worst. I used to think, what if I find that one day my heart wants something that looks different than what God wants for my life? Under that kind of mentality, I used this word first service, I'm gonna use it again. I'm screwed because either I just give up my heart and subject myself to something that I don't want for all of eternity, or I choose the thing that I want, but now, God's mad at me and he's gonna punish me forever. I used to be terrified. What if my heart wants something that looks even just a little bit different than what God wants for my life? It got to the point where when I was in college, I, I, I would think like, I don't even know how to want good things for myself anymore. Now, I wasn't suicidal. I wasn't depressed. But logically, like God was doing good things in my life. I was encountering Jesus in real and tangible ways. And it was amazing. And he was beginning to heal things. But my mind had not changed yet. I still thought of myself in a utilitarian way related to God where I existed for what I did for him or what I could bring to him. So my logic would say, man, if I want a good thing for my life, that's actually kind of taking away from giving up myself just to serve him. I don't even know if that's my identity, I don't even know how to want good things for myself anymore. And Allie wasn't my wife yet. Um, now she is. She would just laugh and say, oh, Andrew, that's so silly. But it was like a real problem. The good news is Jesus was adamant at pressing into the roots of my wrong identity to bring in real peace to set me free and begin to think about myself the way that he does. The same mentality about God that caused me to wonder if it was even okay to want good things for myself. It's the same reason we wonder things like, am I good enough? Or maybe, maybe I'm not pretty enough. Or maybe I'm not holy enough. Or maybe I'm not smart enough. Or not self-sacrificing enough. Or maybe I'm just not enough, period. Maybe I'm not enough. It's that same mentality is at the root of why we're so scared of disobeying or displeasing God. And this is that mentality, that his primary goal is to control us because his primary purpose for our lives is to serve him. That mentality has nothing to do with what Jesus is like, and it is so destructive, that his primary goal is to control us because his primary purpose in our lives is that we serve him. Here's how I know that. Wholeness and control are mutually exclusive. By the very definition of wholeness, and control, they cannot go together. So God's peace that was declared over humanity when the angel showed up, God's peace, wholeness, and control cannot go together. One says that your purpose belongs to you. The other says it belongs to another. One is freedom. The other is slavery. You cannot have goodwill towards something that you control because that goodwill will always ultimately be pointed back toward you and how that thing benefits you. That is not goodwill but the angels declared from God good will toward men. I talked a little bit before about the Old Testament and the New Testament. Have you guys heard the terms the Old Covenant and the New Covenant? 
So we talk about how before Jesus came, the, a covenant establishes a relationship. It's kind of like the boundaries and the rules and the grid work for how that relationship is going to work. So the old covenant before Jesus was kind of like the grid for how we related to God. The problem was the old covenant failed. It didn't work. And we know that because Jesus came and said, I'm establishing a new covenant. In the book of Jeremiah, it tells us why the old covenant failed. It's not because there was anything wrong with the old covenant. It's because of the way we thought about ourselves and God and the way we thought about that covenant. Let me talk about the old covenant. So the old covenant was based on kind of this obedience thermometer, this idea that our purpose is what we bring to God. That's how the Israelites, the participants in the old covenant, viewed their relationship with God. When we're obeying and following the law, we're valid and we're good. When we're not, all of a sudden, we violated our core purpose, which is to serve God. Now, when you believe that you're a slave to be controlled, who needs to be controlled, you're going to act like a slave. Slaves are not powerful and free people. Slaves, when, you, when people have a slave mindset, it leads to incredible dysfunction. The old covenant didn't work because God's people viewed themselves as slaves. And because of that, they had dysfunction with him. They had dysfunction with one another. They had horrible dysfunction in their own lives. The old covenant failed because of the way that God's people thought about themselves and thought about how he intended to relate with them. Jesus came to establish a new covenant. The new covenant works because it sets us free and declares our lives valid, whole, and good, period. Not contingent on if we accept Jesus, not contingent on if we obey him perfectly, not even contingent on if we obey him at all. The new covenant declares your life good and valid and whole. That is the good news, and that is the gospel that sets people free from the trap of slavery and from the trap of sin that releases them to begin to step into the goodness that Jesus has for them, the peace that he's declaring over their lives. Sin's primary accusation against you is that you are worthless in yourself and need to be controlled. I'm going to read that one more time. Sin's primary accusation against you is that you are worthless in yourself and need to be controlled. Jesus soundly defeated that accusation on the cross. You are not worthless in yourself and you do not need to be controlled. And I know that because I know the God who's fighting to set you free and who loves you. He refuses to partner with the spirit of control in your life because that is what Satan's will is for you, that you would be controlled. His will for you is that you would be free. If God has declared peace and wholeness over our lives, okay, so if we can agree God has declared peace and wholeness, and if he doesn't view our purpose as to serve him, because that would be slavery, he's not a slave master, and if therefore he's not trying to control us, then we need to start thinking differently about some things. There are a lot of places where the church, not just us, like this is true of all over humanity, still think about God and things about life that look more like the old covenant than the new covenant. And we need to start changing our minds. We have the mind of Christ now. One of those things that we need to start thinking differently about is sin. So I have some thoughts about sin that are really important to living out peace in a way that lines up with who God is and what he does and the peace that he has for us. Okay, first thought. This comes from John 129, 
where John the Baptist sees Jesus and he says, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus took away the sin of the world. So Jesus took away the sin of Christians, right? That's what that verse says? No, it doesn't. It says Jesus took away the sin of the world. Now, the old covenant where we viewed that we belonged to God in this utilitarian kind of way, where our purpose was what we did for him. Remember we talked about how that creates in me this idea that I in and of myself am root sin because I exist for him. So me in and of myself am sin because I'm taking away from that when I'm not fulfilling that function of bringing him glory or doing something for him. Jesus with the new covenant declares freedom. It is for freedom that Christ has set you free. The purpose of your freedom is freedom. That is what Jesus sees inside of you because he loves you. That takes away that root core idea of I am sin, gets rid of it so that we can enter into relationship with God from a place of freedom. Jesus takes away the sin of the world. Sin is not the main issue anymore. No longer is every mistake or unhealthy choice that you make or decision that is outside of God's will for you just a direct offense against him or a line of accusation against you. Freedom, no longer is every mistake or failure just an offense and an accusation. Managing sin and controlling behavior is not the main issue. Learning to be free is. That is what the gospel is about. Okay, a lot of times we associate sin with punishment. A lot of times we associate God with punishment. Um, Isaiah 53, 5 says, the punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And that's speaking about Jesus. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. So you're saying, well, Andrew, right there, like punishment, like God punishes. Okay, but let's look at 1 John chapter 4. I love John. I love 1 John, and I love 1 John chapter 4. Um, there's some beautiful things written here. One of them is this statement, God is love. We all agree with that, right? God is love. Another statement right there, same chapter. Perfect love casts out fear. Very similar statement. There is no fear in love. Okay, so if there's no fear in love, and God is love, what's the corollary there? There's no fear in God. Yes, absolutely. That's a logical conclusion from that. Then he explains why there's no fear in God. Because fear has to do with punishment. What's the next logical corollary then? There is no punishment in God. When we think about the cross and Jesus, the punishment that brought us peace was on him. Have you guys seen National Treasure? I don't know if it's one or two, but the FBI guy at the end, like there's this crime that's taken place and his response to Nicolas Cage is, well, somebody's got to go to jail, right? Like something wrong happened. Somebody has got to go to jail. And every time I see that, it rubs me the wrong way because God has been fighting so hard in my life to teach me that's not how he functions. When something wrong happens, somebody doesn't have to go to jail just because somebody needs to go to jail. Just pack that one away for a minute. Um, so we often think that God had to punish us for our sin, so he punished Jesus in our place. But there's no punishment in God. Je God didn't punish Jesus on the cross. Instead, he punished sin. He punished that which tries to rob from and control free people. God punishes systems of control and abuse. He does not punish people. There's no punishment for free people in God. 
Because God is not trying to control you, he does not relate to you in a reward-punishment kind of way, but rather through an invitation to join him in discovering the goodness, love, wholeness, and freedom that his kingdom is all about. There's no punishment for free people. But you're like, Andrew, what about the people who partner with those systems of control and abuse? Like, like Hitler, or like someone who just chooses to like be abusive in their relationship with someone. What about people who choose to partner? Don't they need to be punished? In order to answer that, we have to talk about two different kinds of sins. Raise your hand if you've heard someone say in the church before, all sin is the same. No sin is like greater than another, all sin's the same. Okay, it's not true. <laughs> not all sin's the same. There are two very different kinds of sin, and this is super important to understanding the new covenant. The first kind of sin I like to call cheeseburger sins. Everybody say cheeseburger sins. Okay, so picture a McDonald's, and you're like, oh, I just had a cheeseburger, and this is really good. I like the way that it tastes. And so you think, I'll come here for my next meal and get another cheeseburger, and I'll get a large fry and a large soda while I'm at it. And then the next day you're like, I think today for breakfast, lunch, and dinner, I'm gonna have a cheeseburger again. So now your father is like, oh, that's not a good choice for you. And you're like, but I want the cheeseburger. He's like, okay, I'm never talking to you again. Right? Like, that doesn't make any sense. Cheeseburger sins are things people do that limit or steal from or unhealthy for their own life. Cheeseburger sins are things we do that just limit or are unhealthy for us. God isn't trying to control you. If you make a choice that's unhealthy for you, you have the freedom to do that, knowing that God still loves you. There's still room for you in his presence. His attitude toward you hasn't changed in any way. He doesn't want you to do something that's unhealthy for you, and he's going to fight for you to get freedom from that thing. But we don't have to be afraid that he's just out to punish us if we make a mistake or choose something that's unhealthy for our lives. Because under the old covenant, people thought they were robbing from God when they did that. Under the new covenant, you don't exist just for what you bring for it to him. He declares freedom. Cheeseburger sins are very different than sins of injustice. Now, sins of injustice are whenever someone makes a choice that limits or steals from somebody else. The way that God handles and responds to sins of injustice and the way that we're intended to respond to sins of injustice is through boundaries. So let me give an example. I'm a dad, I have kids. Let's say I started just being an unhealthy dad, neglect or whatever it looked like. At some point, someone would come in and draw a boundary and say, you can't be there and do that anymore. Now, in the old way of thinking about God, when someone makes that choice, not only is a boundary drawn where we say, okay, you can't be there anymore, but now I need to torture that person and make that person feel awful. And I need to make sure bad things happen to that person because they shouldn't have made that choice because they weren't free to make that choice. I'm free to make that choice. If I make that choice, there's gonna be a boundary that's drawn and I, I'm not gonna be allowed to be there. My father is still gonna fight for me to be there. He still loves me, he still wants me to be there, but that's a boundary. That's different than punishment. Punishment says you didn't have a right to make that choice. It's not okay that you make that choice. I'm gonna punish you forever for making the wrong choice. Sins of injustice and cheeseburger sins are completely different. Peace, biblical peace demands that when injustice is taking place, the boundaries are drawn because peace protects the wholeness of each party. Biblical peace doesn't punish though. When you, here's a big thing for us church. When you try to put up boundaries with those who are not stealing from you, just because you don't like that they're eating cheeseburgers or you don't like a personal choice that they've made, 
you're trying to control and you're actually destroying peace rather than establishing it or fighting for it. Okay, we're going to read a verse. I love this verse. Ephesians 2, 14 through 15. It's talking about Jesus and how he came to bring two groups of people, those who are close to God and those who are far from God together. For he himself, Jesus, is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. So what did Jesus set aside? The law with its commands and regulations. That was the thing creating the hostility in this verse. Now, let me ask you this. Is the law good? It's not a trick question. Is the law good? Yeah, the Bible says it's good. It comes from God. But the purpose of the law is to teach us how to live healthy and whole lives. God never intended the law to be a force of control and condemnation in your life. It was never meant to be a thing that enslaves you or controls you or gives you utilitarian value with God. It also was never meant to be a tool that you use to control or condemn others. That was never its purpose. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus for you or for you to try to throw on anyone else. There's no condemnation for us who are in Christ Jesus. The angels came and they declared that Jesus was God's declaration of peace, wholeness, and goodwill toward mankind. Here are the two things I want you to take away from that. One, God's not trying to control you. He's trying to set you free. There is grace over your life. It's okay to grow. It's okay to fail. It's okay to make mistakes. It's okay to need to go on a side journey to figure something out. There is so much grace in Jesus. He's not offended when you make mistakes. He's not offended when you make an unhealthy choice for your life. He loves you. He wants to lead you into the fullness of the plans he has for you, but he's not offended if you make a choice that wasn't his best choice for you. So for me, when I embraced this, I told you about my crippling performance mentality. Um, I was in college and I was in a worship night and um, I was in the back of the room. Sometimes, like, God talks to us in so many different ways. He speaks to us through the scriptures. He speaks to us in our hearts. He speaks to us through others. Sometimes he just, like, directly speaks. People hear him audibly. He can show us pictures or different things like that. So I was in the back of the chapel. I went to Bible college, um, and I was worshiping, and I saw this picture, and there was this little girl, just little. She had beautiful blonde hair and curls, and she was running toward me. And in, in this picture, um, I knew that her name was Grace, and I kind of thought she was my daughter in the picture, but that wasn't super relevant to the story. But she was running toward me, and she leapt into my arms, and I threw my arms around her. And I knew her name was Grace, and Jesus very clearly said, Andrew, it's time for you to embrace grace. What you need to understand is before that point, I hated the word grace. I felt like it was just an excuse for people to be lazy, or it was an excuse people threw out so they could just go on sinning and not feeling guilty. But that performance mentality had crippled me and had bound me up instead of set me free. And Jesus said, Andrew, you need to embrace grace and let go of that performance slave control mentality that you have toward me. And I did, and it transformed my life. Two, so one, God's not trying to control you. Two, God's not trying to control your friends, your family members, your neighbors, or the rest of America that you disagree with. He's not trying to control them. You don't need to try to control them either. Peace. It's okay to coexist with people that you disagree with. 
that you don't like their choices. You don't like their lifestyle choices. You may not think they're healthy, but peace, you can be okay with them and see them through a lens of God's peace and goodwill and love them and bless their freedom, even bless their freedom to make unhealthy choices. Even that is fighting for the gospel in their life because that lines up with freedom. You just get to just love them and invite them to encounter the God who has peace and goodwill toward them, who delights in bringing wholeness and freedom into their lives. So here's my challenge. It's Christmas season. We're celebrating God's hope. We're celebrating his love. We're celebrating his joy. We're celebrating his peace that he declared in Jesus, that Jesus is our peace. I challenge you to declare peace over your own life as you begin to let go of performance and to embrace grace and the powerful freedom. Freedom is powerful. Freedom transforms people, even when they make wrong choices along the way. I challenge you to declare peace and embrace grace. I challenge you, challenge number two, to find one person in your life that you have been having a hard time having peace with, that you've drawn maybe an unfair boundary or that you've written that person off or you've said, oh, they're just too far gone or I just really don't like the choices that they're making. Somebody, maybe they've hurt you in the past and no longer are they unhealthy, but you're still punishing them for like a past choice they've made. Find somebody like that and extend peace to them over the Christmas season. You don't have to go up to them and say, hey, I've been not having a good attitude toward you and now I'm extending you peace. That's probably not a good idea. You may need to have a conversation like that, but you could just look them in the eye and smile at them. Or you could send them a note. Or you could give them a present. Just see them through the lens of peace and goodwill that God has toward them and then start treating them like that's true. That'll transform your life too. Embracing his peace and extending that to others. So we're gonna sing a couple more Christmas songs. Everyone go ahead, stand up. Um, we're just gonna soak in and celebrate the peace of Jesus. I'm gonna pray and then we're gonna jump into these songs. Jesus, you are our peace. You are Jehovah Shalom, God our peace and your peace is powerful and it sets us free. So for anyone in this room who has been struggling with or even just has a piece or shred of that performance mentality, Jesus, thank you that right now you are fighting to get rid of that thing inside of them. And I agree with that in your name, Jesus, that those mindsets would just start to break off and people would begin to have your thoughts about them, what you say about them, how you look at their freedom, how you love them and how you value their destiny. We invite your peace in Jesus. And would you give us some really cool opportunities to extend that peace to others in this season and for the rest of our lives. We wanna live that kind of life with you, Jesus. Thank you, amen.